Every year that I've been in pastoral ministry since 1987, I've been asked the same question this week of the year. Will we have worship tonight? My response is usually poor or smart-alecky, and that's my default setting anyway. And I thought that knowing that this was coming up, I thought I need to have a better answer this week. And so, sure enough, I was asked by Monday afternoon, will we have worship this evening? And my response was a little bit better thought out. I said, you know, I love a spectacle. I've been to a few of them. The 4th of July celebration in Memphis in 1981, where Sandy and I, along with 250,000 other people, stood on the banks of the Mississippi River watching the Memphis Symphony go down the river on a barge playing the 1812 Overture. That qualifies as a spectacle. And then there was the MLK Day Parade in Las Vegas in 1997 with my sons and I with hundreds of thousands of people lining Las Vegas Boulevard. And then the greatest spectacle of all, the 2009 OU Texas game in the Cotton Bowl. Nothing could top that. But tonight, 115 million Americans will choose to bypass Lord's Day worship in order to worship a spectacle so big it's called the Super Bowl. But you and I are actually called to a much greater spectacle. In Hebrews 12, we're told what happens when we gather for corporate worship. Listen to how the Bible speaks of this spectacle. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening, when we gather as a congregation to be drawn up into the heavenlies for the worship of the triune God, we come to the greatest spectacle in history. And so, yes, we will do so tonight as we worship and as we continue our preaching through the book of Joshua. The New Testament repeatedly teaches that the government of the church should be leadership by a plurality of elders. What are elders to do? When you boil the task of elders down to their irreducible minimum, they come down to four biblical tasks. The word, prayer, rule or oversight, and shepherding. And what the New Testament repeatedly says is no man should be an elder who's not skilled in these disciplines and is pursuing excellence in them. Now, you've come to us on a Sunday morning when we are in the thick of the process of electing elders and deacons. And so let me remind you what that looks like in a Presbyterian church. First of all, we talk an awful lot about seeking men who meet biblical qualifications. Those qualifications can be found in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And then we follow a a clear, a careful, a transparent process where the congregation nominates men, men who they recognize as having a giftedness and a calling. And then those nominated men go through training. We're doing that right now on Wednesday nights, followed by several months of reading and study. And then those same men undergo a, a rigorous examination by the elders. 
And then comes the day when we have a congregational election, when the congregation actually formally chooses their elders. No elders can be foisted upon a Presbyterian church from outside or on high. The congregation has the right to choose their own elders. And then those same men are ordained through the authoritative laying on of hands. We place great honor upon the office of elder. It's an office of dignity and weightiness. And our text today in 1 Peter 5, I hope you have your Bible open, because if you've ever said something like, oh, I don't think church government matters, then what you're saying is I don't think the scriptures matter. Because scripture speaks repeatedly, clearly on this issue because they understand that church government is of great import and matter. And so this text we'll be looking at today, if you have this text in front of you, you now have half of the duties of an elder spelled out for you clearly in this text. And if we were then to go to Acts 6, we would have the other half of the duties listed for us. But this text will, will establish our understanding of how biblical church government is to work, and you'll need your Bible open to 1 Peter 5. Let's seek the Lord's help now as we prepare to understand this text. Our Father, we ask now that out of your great mercy and your love for your church that you would send the Holy Spirit to us so that as this clear word is proclaimed, all other voices would fade away, and there would only be one voice we would hear today, your voice of truth and grace, speaking in the scriptures. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. I've done this before at weddings, and I'll do it today, when I will have the couple standing there who's about to get married, and I will say to all of the gathered guests, we prefer to call them witnesses at a wedding and not guests, I'll say, I'm really just going to be preaching to Bob and Sue here, but y'all can listen in because it will be good for your marriage and it will be good because 10, 20, 30 years from now, if you see Bob and Sue hitting some speed bumps, you can say, I was there that day and I heard what Carl said to you and I want to remind you of that word. That's sort of your function today. I'm going to be speaking largely to elders and men who the Lord is calling to elders and I hope to 13, 14-year-old boys 25-year-old men who the Lord might be even now stirring a calling in their hearts. I, I do hope you know, young men, teenage men, that we pray every Wednesday night during our prayer that the Lord would begin to raise up from our own congregation. Right now, people who you would never dream of in a thousand years that they would be an elder, especially your moms. But we're praying that the Lord would raise up a, a horde of young men who would serve in the church. And the reason why I want to say I'm speaking primarily to the elders in our midst, look at your text carefully. Peter begins, and he says, I'm talking to elders. Look what he says in 1 Peter 5, 1, the elders who are among you I exhort. And certainly while all of the Bible is for all the people of God, this text is to men who are elders, or men who are grappling with a calling to the office. So I want to speak as well, though, to you in the congregation because what I've seen, so few people have grown up, so few members of this congregation actually grew up in a Presbyterian church, a Reformed church, and so you're carrying around incomplete or faulty ideas of what elders are. Perhaps you think, well, they're the leading men in the community. They're the president of the bank or the principal of the local school. 
or you have faulty ideas about what elders are to do. And you think, well, they're kind of like a sanctified board of directors, right? And what I want you to do is I want you to commit right now to say, I'm going to have my views of the eldership shaped by the word of God, period. And so I'm going to lock down now. I'm going to rivet my gaze on this four-verse context. And even though this may correct my views and change my views, I'm going to listen carefully to this word. I'm not going to be too proud to have my views corrected by Holy Scripture. Now look at our text in verse 1. Who is doing the addressing? Peter says, the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder. Peter could have trotted out his status as an apostle. But by simply saying, I'm right there with you elders. I'm one of you. I'm an elder. He is modeling for us two important traits that an elder must have. The first is humility. The next time I stand in this pulpit, God willing, we will look at that specific trait. So important is humility, not only for an elder, but for the Christian. We're going to give a Sunday morning to it. But then he's also modeling a second thing for elders, and that is collegiality. Peter is saying that no elder is above any other elder. Look what he calls himself in verse 1. He is a fellow elder. You see, elders in the New Testament always function in a plurality and a parity. There is no boss elder, no first among equals, no popes, no pontifex maximus. We believe in parity of the elderships, meaning no hierarchy, and plurality. No one elder runs the show. If you say, well, that guy's the boss elder at his church, then you can be sure you're speaking of a dysfunctional church. Now notice the nature of the address. Look at verse 1 again. Peter says, I exhort you. What is an exhortation? The Greek word here is parakaleo, which means to come alongside and entreat, to come alongside and plead. The fact that Peter exhorts his fellow elders shows his seriousness. In other words, Peter is saying, don't take this work lightly. It's not optional. And Peter, in giving his qualifications, reminds the elders to whom he is speaking that he is a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Don't you think that when Peter pulls this out in verse 1, that this is a subtle reminder when he says, I was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. It's a subtle reminder that he blew it around the time of Jesus' arrest and trials and suffering. That when the heat was on, he wilted. And so he knows what it's like to be a failure and to be restored and minister as one who's needed the reclaiming grace of Jesus. Because a truly godly man, a truly called elder, he's always going to be saying, I, I don't think I'm worthy. By the way, you don't want any other type of elder than that type. If you're talking to someone who says, yep, Woodruff Road would be really privileged to have me as an elder. Run in the opposite direction as fast as you can. But if you're talking to somebody who says, I, I, I really struggle with do I have what it takes? I see the office. I think it's glorious. I, I have a zeal for the office, but I'm just not really sure that I measure up. That's probably the type of, type of guy we want in the eldership. And that's what Peter is doing here. When he says, I was a witness to the sufferings of Christ, that's code for, I dropped the ball. 
as Jesus is going through the beating and mocking and scourging and slapping, I was denying him. He knows what it's like to be somebody who needs the reclaiming grace of Jesus. And Peter reminds them of the fact that he has seen Christ suffer and that he will be, look what he says in the future tense, he will be a sharer in the glory of Christ. And by setting out this order, Peter is telling the elders, first came the cross, first came the sufferings of Christ, then came the crown, first the sufferings, then the exaltation. So Peter gives specific imperatives to elders. Look at them there with me, and they are imperatives. Notice how he uses the word shepherd. He doesn't use it as a noun. He uses it as a verb. And we use the term shepherding a lot here as a verb, and it's rooted in this text. Peter says to the elders, shepherd, that's a verb, an action verb, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Now, Peter received this exact same command from the risen Jesus in John 21, 16, when he was told by Jesus to tend my sheep. Of course, Jesus is the perfect model for shepherding. Think of the good shepherd discourse in John chapter 10, where Jesus tells us what it means for him to be our shepherd, the perfect shepherd. He leads the sheep. He gives constant care to the sheep. He's not a hireling over the sheep. He knows his sheep and calls them by name. And the ultimate picture of him as a shepherd, he will lay down his life for his sheep. Now, why shepherd when men come and they begin going through the training and they begin to see how much emphasis we place on shepherding? And they'll scratch their head sometime and say, why such an emphasis on shepherding? Well, first of all, let me cite a human document. Our constitutional document, our book of church order, it's our law book for how we do church and worship and discipline. Our book of church order says, it belongs to the office of elder to watch diligently over the flock committed to their charge that no corruption of doctrine or morals should enter therein. The elders should visit the people at their homes the elders should instruct the ignorant, comfort the mourner, nourish and guard the children of the church. The elders should pray with and for his people. And the elders should be diligent in seeking the fruit of the preached word among the flock. And so why shepherd? Because our, our rule book, our, our book of church order says this is the bar. This is where it's set for an elder. But even more importantly, an elder should shepherd because the second person of the Trinity who bought them with his own blood commands them to do so. The value that Jesus places upon his church, upon his sheep, is beyond measure. If he will go to bloodshed and death for them, how should the shepherds watch over the flock with diligence and intentionality? How can a shepherd complain of having no time to shepherd the flock? Or how can a shepherd complain of the fear of man when God places such a value on the care and feeding of his elect sheep. Christ has shown that he values these people, his sheep, so much that he will lay down his life voluntarily. And that's what he calls his representatives, his elders to do. Christ says to his elders, I came down from heaven to seek and save the lost. And so you now go to for five miles across town to shepherd them. You as an elder are Christ's steward. 
his representative. In fact, you will even give an account on the last day, according to Hebrews 13, 17, for your stewardship of the flock. The writer of Hebrews says, the elders, watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Whom to shepherd? And this is vital and important. Look carefully at verse 2. If you are not a member of this church, just sort of a permanent attender or a visitor, I will tell you, we love you, we welcome you, we embrace you, but our elders only have a mandate to shepherd the flock of God, those who are the members of this congregation. Peter tells the elders that they are to shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Not strangers, but people who are right here who are members of this congregation. And this includes the 200 non-communing members, children. And so elders, that means that you're to know their names and their stories. You're to speak to them. Some of them are unconverted. Make them your special concern. You're to know and shepherd the backslider, the declining Christian, the one who's fallen into sin or scandal or have lost their first love. And you're to shepherd the strong in faith, those who are always thankful for your exhortation to persevere. Shepherding the flock means that you're to know what each person in the flock needs. A one-size-fits-all shepherding model can never do in the church of Jesus. Because among your sheep, one needs a rebuke, one needs a word of encouragement, one needs a warning, one needs feeding, all needs your intercessory prayer for them, all needs you to pray for them against temptation. Just as a good doctor knows all of their patients and their issues, you must know your sheep individually. Now notice what the key operative verb is in the imperative, shepherd. I want to spend a moment defining and expanding what shepherding is. We've even adopted a, a really slavish model here at Woodruff Road for our elders. In 1647, Richard Baxter came to be the new minister at Kidderminster, England, to the church that is still there. He came there to pastor the town's only church, 1647. And when he arrived, he wrote in his diary that he found a congregation of a couple dozen ignorant, rude, reveling people. Within just a few years, the church had had to build five balconies to hold all the people in attendance. And according to a visitor passing through Kidderminster, he wrote these words, On the Lord's Day in Kidderminster, you'll pass scores of families singing psalms and discussing the sermon. What caused the dramatic change in the very ethos of this town, and especially in this church? Well, the means that were used to effect such a transformation was really one. It was the practice of diligent shepherding of the flock by the elders. In his landmark book that I would deeply refer to every seminary student, especially to every elder, it's entitled The Reformed Pastor. It's a, it's a classic, a devotional classic. Richard Baxter lays out his model, and he bases it all on Acts 20:28, 20, Paul's exhortation to the Ephesian elders, he lays out his model for the shepherding of the flock. And at the heart of Baxter's shepherding model was the annual meeting where the elder would sit down with the family in their home, 
discuss everything from their pattern of Bible reading to their Lord's Day observance to the health of their marriage to their growth in sanctification to their practice of parenting. The elder would strive to encourage, counsel, teach, minister in a way that was not possible in the normal assembling together of the church on Sundays. In short, the elder was there to care for the sheep. He was there to shepherd them. Why was this model effective? Because it's biblical. Because it provided an ongoing accountability and nurturing relationship between a shepherd and the sheep. What was the lasting impact of this sociological experiment in the life of the church in Kidderminster, England? Eighty years after Richard Baxter left, George Whitfield was passing through, and he thought he would pay his respects to this church where Richard Baxter had preached, and he visited the church and he wrote in his diary, today I was greatly encouraged to find the sweet savor of Mr. Baxter's ministry still permeating the town and the elders faithfully shepherding the sheep. We're striving to put into practice this very model. When you look at this, these verses in 1 Peter 5 and think, What's happening with shepherding? This is what draws us, guides us as the elders of Woodruff Road. Each communing member of Woodruff Road has been placed in a shepherding group under an elder's care. These shepherding groups meet on Sunday for Sunday school, for prayer and study and fellowship and encouragement. And we also have implemented the pattern of annual shepherding visits. Your elder will call, so be expecting that. If you see that it's the elder calling, don't hit, hang up real quickly. Answer the call. He'll call, and he'll say, pick a time that's convenient for your family. He'll come over and spend some time praying with you and for you. He'll talk with you about your growth in grace. He'll generally seek to encourage you in the faith. Your elders desire not to be the spiritual police or just to be nosy, but to give mature, godly oversight to you. And look at 1 Peter 5.1. Because he is commanded to you. And so if you're thinking, well, why is he doing that? I don't need that. He needs that. He must do that. This is what he's commanded to do. And so make his life easy and say, yes, come over on Friday night. And by the way, I'll have steaks on the grill when you come. Our vision for shepherding the flock is not a once a year thing, even though our elders are committed to doing a once a year shepherding visit. Each of our elders are very accessible through email. They, you all should have their cell phone numbers. And they want to be your first line of spiritual care because 1 Peter 5.1 says so. If you have a need, don't hesitate to call your elder. We're committed to caring for the flock the Lord has given us and seeking to obey this mandate. Stare at these words in verse 2. Shepherd the flock. That's what drives our elders. But a moment ago, I said that elders must be skilled at four tasks. Word, prayer, shepherding. And look at the other thing our text contains, rule. We are told that the elders, in verse 2, they must also serve as overseers. And now right here, in, contained in this tight little text, two of the four duties of elders are right in front of you. Shepherd the flock, serve as overseers. So whenever we speak of problems in the church to solve or discipline needs to happen, the buck stops with the elders. They're the overseers. We look to them for leadership. The congregation has elected these men to lead. They have the divine mandate. And so I'd remind you elders, 
And I do this oftentimes in our session meetings. When we come up against a problem, I'll say, don't look outside the window and think, who's going to come along and solve this? The congregation chose you. The congregation chose the elders to lead with wisdom, deeply rooted in the scripture. Remember, in every sphere of authority, God has ordained authority, not that are, that are egalitarian or democratic. In the home, God has ordained parents to lead. In the state, God has ordained the civil magistrate to lead. And in the church, God has ordained, look at your text, elders to be overseers for the church. Now notice the warnings that Peter gives to elders. He tells them, first of all, that they should not labor under compulsion. Peter is warning ordained men against a lazy pattern of ministry that requires some sort of coercion to engage in shepherding or leadership. And then Peter quickly adds, but willingly. This man, this elder has no reluctance, needs no coercion, or even external motivation. Paul addresses this in 1 Timothy 3 when he says, If any man desires the office of presbyteros, elder, bishop, he desires a good thing. And so notice what we're saying very subtly, and I want you to hear me very carefully. Over the years I've had people come to me and say, Carl, I've, I've tried to convince Bob to stand for elder, but he just won't. He says he doesn't have a sense of calling. Would you go and talk to him? And I've always said, no. We will not pressure anyone into office here at Woodruff Road. If a man does not have a willing heart, look at the text in 1 Peter 5, verse 2. He has to enter into this office of overseer willingly. If a man doesn't have a willing heart and zeal for the office and the work, he will make a poor elder. He'll grow embittered and resent the labor. The eldership, I will tell you, is thankless and exhausting. And if a man doesn't have a strong sense that God has called him to it, he will fall by the wayside quickly. And then Peter deals with a perpetual problem. Look at verse 2. He says, the elder can't enter into the office for dishonest gain. He's warning against greed and the lust for money. The elder's motivating drive must be to minister to God's people, not to fleece the sheep and enrich himself. Scripture repeatedly teaches that elders... Don't think in terms of rights and authority, but in terms of sacrifice. He's always asking, how can I not take? How can I give of my time? How can I give of my wisdom? And then Peter, again, gives another caution to the flock and to the elders themselves. Not as being lords over those entrusted to you. Peter's warning the elders against pride and the need for prestige of office or a pompous bearing. I've told some of you before, I was in a, another place far, far away, in a presbytery where we had an elder who was brought up on charges by his congregation to the presbytery. And the charge was lording it over the flock. Because as soon as he was elected, he went around and if people would greet him as Bob, he'd say, that's Elder Smith to you. And then he decided that wasn't enough when he walked into a room he would say, why aren't you all standing up when I walk into the room? And he had a dozen or so of those. And so we quickly tried and found him guilty and removed him from the eldership. That's what we mean by lords over the flock, demanding some sort of special honor of people. So rather than driving or domineering the sheep, the godly elder is, look at verse 3, 
to lead the sheep and do so by example. Do you see that? The elder understands that his personal life, his speech, his finances, his time, his Lord's Day practice, his family must serve as an example to the congregation. So the elder knows if he wants the people of God to pray well and biblically, he must model for them a life of constancy in prayer. Besides, Peter wraps up this context. Look at verse 4. By bringing up who the real elder is. He says, because you're not the chief shepherd. You are but an under-shepherd. And so Peter's really addressing those men who are under-shepherds to the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus. And so Peter here in this context, he's, he's addressing men who have a faulty desire. They desire the office so they can boss other people around and oppress them. The elder who wants to lord it over the sheep rules by intimidation and domination. His model for leadership is that of Machiavelli. But the godly elder, his model is the Lord Jesus Christ, who says in his model of leadership in Matthew 20, you know the, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are the great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Notice the promise of reward. Look at verse 4 in our text. Peter says, when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that doesn't fade away. So let me speak very directly to elders and future elders right now. If you're in the eldership or thinking of pursuing this calling to receive the applause of men, you'll be sadly disappointed. A few years ago, I was speaking in a conference, and one of the elders who was talking to me afterwards was sort of the gloomy type, you know, the Eeyore sort. And he said to me, this is as close as verbatim as he could state it. No one appreciates all of my labors. No one ever compliments me or thanks me or encourages me. And I said, after I reminded him that the, of his vows, that he didn't enter the office for the praise of men, but I reminded him that the affirmation he desired would not be delivered until the last day. Look at verse 4. For all elders, for all men who are thinking of the calling, here's when the affirmation will happen, not until then. When the chief shepherd appears, meaning at the second advent, at the resurrection, at the great judgment, when Jesus openly rewards his faithful servants with a crown of glory. I've thought an awful lot, I've read an awful lot about what is this crown of glory. I'm not sure. But what faithful elders will do with any crowns they'll receive, I do know. Because Revelation chapter 4 says that the elders take their crowns of glory and they cast them at the feet of of the one who wore a crown of thorns for them. Elders, much of what you do, the meetings, the visits, the agonizing in prayer over your sheep will be thankless. And so if you need a lot of affirmation and strokes, do something else. The eldership is too hard, and there's little to no reward here and now. 
But the wise elder is always looking way down the road. He's looking for that day when he hears the affirmation of Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. That's his desire. Let me make two brief applications. The first is to you, the congregation. It is always your task to nominate and then to elect elders. And so let me just give you a reminder about what sort of men you want in the office. I've known far too many elders who thought they were qualified for the office because they'd read a theology book. That's it. Or they were financially savvy. But they had no interest in shepherding the flock. In fact, they, were, they ran out the back door as soon as the benediction was given. They didn't know how to speak to people. That's not what the elder Peter has in mind. Do not choose men to rule over you who don't love people who don't have a shepherd's heart for people. If you're thinking of somebody think, well, he's read a couple of theology books. I think he'd make a good elder. Ask this question. Does he know the congregation already? Does he know the children? Does, can he easily move from section to section and, and speak to people? To elders. Don't look for others to shepherd the flock. The flock is waiting for you to shepherd them. They elected you to shepherd them. You have the mandate. You have several duties as an elder, teaching, discipline, leadership, but none more important than shepherding the flock. Peter says so here in 1 Peter 5. Paul, his fellow apostle, says the exact same thing to the elders in Acts 20 when he says, take heed to all the flock to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. In fact, and I'm not engaged in hyperbole here, to an elder. I know that our elders have busy lives. They have jobs and families and they're busy men. And I know they have to juggle a lot of balls in the air. And so let me make your life very easy for you right now. If you're looking at a week that's so busy that you can scarcely squeeze in one task of ministry, shepherd your flock. Make that shepherding visit. Skip any other meeting or any other thing, but don't neglect your sheep. You have elect people, sheep who Jesus chose and loves, and he has entrusted them to you. And you will give an account for your shepherding on the last day. Elders, shepherd the flock. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray for the men you've raised up to lead us and rule over us and shepherd us. Our Father, we are thankful for them. We're thankful that in this time at Woodruff Road, you've raised up godly men. We pray for their continued focus, that they would have a laser-like focus on knowing and shepherding the sheep of Woodruff Road. We pray for their energy, that when these men are tired, that you'll enable them to mount up with wings like eagles. We pray for their perseverance, that they would be enabled to fulfill their calling over the long haul. We pray for zeal, that they would have an unflagging passion to care for their sheep. For our elders, Lord, protect them. Keep them from temptation. Guard their marriage and their family life. Do good to your church through these men. We pray in the name of the chief shepherd.